Jesus foretells Peter's denial. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come unto thee in this beautiful Sabbath day that thou hast provided for us, Lord. And we now look at your infallible word, and we hear your word preached, and we ask that thou be with Pastor Kuiper, and give him the ability to do so, and with thy Holy Spirit working in him, we pray that we will understand this portion of your word, and we can use this word in our daily lives. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I have a question for you. Begin with a positive and also a, a negative here. And the negative here is this. When I was born in 1960, in 1960, I was born. And this is the mark of sociologists and statisticians and the research that I've read and do on the decline of the church in the West, the decline of the family, the rise of evangelical radical feminism, and most of all, the decline of masculinity in Western civilization of which we export throughout the world to places like Nigeria, Sri Lanka, India, and uh, the Netherlands as well, and I've been there. So I look at that, and listen, 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 my friends. When I was born in 1960 on Maple Row and Leonard Street, we would consistently go over to our friends' homes, knock on the door, and uh, ask them to come out and play. And inevitably, you would hear this. No, my dad got home late from work, and we'll be right out as soon as we're done eating, and as soon as we read the Bible and do devotions. One out of ten families were without the father in 1960. Some statistics even say only 7% out of 100%, uh, only, only 7 out of 100 homes were without the father. Now, my friends, why this is so important is because we even know from psychology that kids get their cue, both boys and girls, for their sexual identity and their concept of who God is from their father. Got a quote that psychoanalysis tells us one thing, said Sigmund Freud. If we can sever that relationship with the father, we have an atheist. In essence, and I'll give the exact quote later on in the workshop. What happened then after 1960 was all kinds of things infiltrated, but most predominantly, I blame liberalism and legalism coming into the church and a lack of the gospel and understanding of Jesus Christ. But here's what happened. By 1987, it was two out of five homes were without the father. Now, why is that important? It's important because if you don't have a father in the home, that 
you have a four times greater risk of poverty. You're more likely to have emotional problems. Two times the risk of infant mortality. More likely to go to prison. More likely to commit a crime. Seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teenager. More likely to face abuse and neglect. When the father is taken out of the home, there goes the protection. More likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. Two times more likely to suffer obesity. And two times more likely to drop out of high school. Since that statistic in 1987, here's another statistic that 40% plus. In this statistic I gave about a year or two ago, and someone came up to me and said, Your statistic is old. It's much worse than that. 40% of birth certificates in the United States are without the biological father listed. Why is that important? Well, number one, it's important because your greatest economic engine is a married man for any country, any nation. The Bible says if a man does not provide for his family, he is worse than an unbeliever. It also is important because the family, having a father there, protects everyone from those kind of social ills and builds up a community. Also because of this, my friends, the Bible is explicitly clear. God was not confused when he called out, Adam, where are you? He did not say, Eve, where are you? He did not say, In Psalm 78, he commanded our mothers. No, specifically to the fathers. Mothers are included in this. But primarily to the fathers are to teach these things about God to their children of the mighty things God has done. And in fact, when God pronounces his curse upon people, it is because they have neglected family worship. The fathers have abdicated their God-ordained responsibility to be the spiritual head of the home. And we're not doing too well today, even in churches. Nobody's challenging men. So men, today, I am speaking like a Puritan, primarily to you. I am going to speak as the prophet, priest, and king of the pulpit of the church to you who are the prophet, priest, and king of the home. The Puritans were always aiming towards that father, and if things were confused or confusing, then he was the one they went to for answers. But I'm going to preach to all of us here about Jesus Christ, because it is not primarily a sociological problem, although it is. It is a spiritual problem at the very subatomic level of understanding the Trinity. The Father who sends the Son, the Son who sends the Holy Spirit, is never done in reverse order. They have divine dignity, divine distinctives, and divine delight. And today, we're going to concentrate on Jesus Christ executing the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And then we're going to have a workshop afterwards of how that applies to every man sitting in the pew and how if we can reinstill this into the fabric of the church, 
then we will see young people taking hold of their faith once again through the faith of their fathers. And I'm not saying anything derogatory towards women. I'm just, I'm just in the explaining business, but not in the editing business. And I want to explain the beauty of Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Let's go to God's word again, and let's see how Jesus executes that office of prophet, priest, and king. Here's the setting. The setting is the intense, focused time that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. You know, Jesus is not an accidental Christ. He did not go to Jerusalem for the Passover and all of a sudden got trapped and he got executed. Boy, I thought these people really liked me. They were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And now they want to kill me. Oh, oh. I mean, no. Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem like flint. He has come with great resolve and diligence and purpose. He understands exactly what's going to happen. He understands the cosmological battle of the universe. And he wants his disciples to know and understand that after all these things unfold, after they fail, he will not fail. He is victorious and his power will be given to them. And nowhere is it more evident than in a man called Peter. Because he is so sure of himself. Jesus wants to make it clear that you're not going to do anything by your might, Peter, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. You'll understand this in 53 days, right? We heard a great sermon here last week. 53 days, well, 54, because this is Thursday night. Peter... You're not going to do this because you had the privilege to be raised in a Jewish home. You're going to do this because you're my elect. Peter, you are not going to be called the rock. You are not going to be the leader. You are not going to be the minister and stand before the Sanhedrin because of your might, but because of your particular calling that I am giving to you. And now we come and we see that Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Wow. I mean, can you imagine Peter sitting there at the Last Supper and he's the leader Judas is going to betray. They wonder, is it I? Is it I? And Jesus just looks at him. Remember, he had said to him before, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. When he asked, who are you? The Christ, the Son of the living God. And now he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. This is very particular to Peter, but it also is generally to you and I. We are hopeless, we are helpless, and we are victims of this spiritual reality between the powers of the universe, between Satan, who is a devouring lion, and he's coming after us. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's just tearing open the, the fabric between the material universe and the spiritual universe that are combined. And he looks at Peter and says, Satan, 
the evil one, wants you, demands to have you. And Jesus takes this first step to pronunciate the prophet's role. The prophet in the Old Testament is given the word of God from God, and the prophet gives it to the people. So it comes from above and goes into the fabric of the life of the people. And Jesus is doing that here. He's displaying his ability, his reality of being the prophet. Remember that a prophet is the chief teacher. The Heidelberg Catechism says this, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Fathers, you realize whether you're homeschool, public school, Christian school, charter school, no school, that Satan wants your children, that there is a spiritual battle going on for the soul of your son and your daughter. He doesn't care if they get all the acolytes in the world as long as he can have them for eternity in the pit of hell, the fiery furnace, the reality where time continues without end. Satan wants and is strategizing to sift your son and daughter, your soul, your wife like wheat. You remember in the in the harvest you would you would take the 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 weed up and you would throw it in the wind like we had yesterday, would just take the uh, the things that you didn't want and then the wheat would come down. And that's what Satan's strategy is. He wants to take us and sift us like wheat. And Jesus is teaching spiritual truths in a material world. He's warning of danger and giving us guardrails as the great prophet in which we can open his word and learn his word and be protected. And then he also is giving very personal application. Now, fathers, I want to ask you in particular, what are you really teaching your children? What are the outcomes when your child leaves your house? What do you want them to know? And what's your strategy of making sure they know that? I want my children to know basically three things that Jesus is the only way to be saved, period. How does a person become saved? I, I would do this with them, by the way. i go, oh, wait a minute, when they were younger. I know you. I see it. You're a schnookamookums. You're a child of God. Now, schnookamookums is not in the Greek or the Hebrew. Uh, that's just a word that I made up, okay? And, and then I would say, now, how does one become a Christian? By receiving Jesus into your heart. When they got to the age of discretion, I wanted them to know 
that there were not many ways to God. There was only one way, and that was found in Jesus Christ. I wanted them to know that you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, period. I wanted them to know, I think this fits in tonight's sermon, that they don't get it because of the bloodline of Bruce and Michelle Kuyper, but because God will adopt them into his love. And that's the only way, period. Can you be saved by being a good person? No, that's not the gospel. Can you be saved if every generation attends church? No. You have to receive Jesus into your heart. I want them to know and understand that Christians marry only Christians. I'd save myself a lot of hurt and heartache if we had that central authority that they were only going to marry a man who was in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. Christians marry Christians. Then I also taught them about money, and I would teach them things, because I know that that's an important thing to teach children about how to handle money, to be good stewards of what God's given them. Now, men, what are your goals and your objectives for your family? What do you go and pray for? What is the outcome? What are you teaching? Let's give you kind of an illustration, too. When my children got on bikes, we put training wheels on them, and we would run alongside of them. And that was really cute, uh, especially before they were five years old. And then by the time they were about six, they rode their own bikes. And then, now it wouldn't be real cute if my daughter was 18 years old and she's on training wheels and I'm right by her. We developed them and pushed them to be independent. But then I also said this to them. You're going to love riding your bike in this neighborhood if you understand that there is a car coming from every driveway going to hit you and kill you if you don't pay attention. And I'm, am I a mean dad? No, I wanted them to understand that there were dangers. We live in an optimistic world, and even the church, where parents are just assuming so many things about their children's eternity. They're not equipping them to get out and go down the road, but to look out for the dangers. That's what a prophet does. He understands the world in which he lives. He understands the holiness of God and the grace of God. And he teaches it in real and practical ways and makes sure that it's a part of the fabric of his children's life. Here's what George Hammond said, and he wrote a letter to the, to the uh, mayor of London, and it probably should be resent to the mayor of London. And he said this, as a prophet, this man, this husband, this father, is not only to teach himself, as every good man ought to do, after the psalmist example of Psalm 16, 7, my reigns also instruct me in the night seasons, meaning that he's teaching himself. He's growing in holiness. But he is also to teach his family, as Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, thou shalt diligently teach them to thy children. And you know that Psalm 78, 5 makes it explicitly clear that the fathers are to teach their children. That is not to the exclusion of the wife. I learned the Lord's Prayer coming home from Standale Reformed Church. 
crawling up to my father's lap and learning the Lord's Prayer, a Sunday school lesson. He was my favorite uh, catechism teacher. My father was killed 28 years ago. He was killed in a car accident on Lake Michigan Drive. But yet, because he was a spiritual leader in the home, not a perfect man, but a spiritual leader in the home, those lessons continued. And when he was gone, my mother would sit us on her lap and sit us around at lunchtime, and she would read the Bible to us. So it wasn't just my father, but it was my father making sure that the Word of God was read and put into the fabric of the life of his children. And now as eternity moves on, these are the lessons that are the most important to a young person, that their father taught them about God, and their mother continued in that legacy. So that's the role of a prophet. Here's the role of a priest. So the prophet speaks the word of God to the people. The priest takes the cares and concerns of the people and brings them up to God. Peter gets this from Jesus. So when he says, Satan has demanded to have you, can you imagine that? Jesus, the creator of the universe, telling you that Satan, the nemesis of the universe, wants to have you. You'd be shaken. But Jesus says this, but I have prayed for you. I am your protector that your faith may not fail. Jesus is letting him know that there's a spiritual warfare going on. He's letting him know that he is the new Adam. You see, Adam was told in Genesis 2 that he would be the caretaker. And that same verb, that same action that Adam has to be the caretaker of creation in the garden is used when God calls out Aaron and his family to become priests. And that's their priestly duty, is to protect. And the priest protects that which God has given. And then he brings up the petitions of prayer to the Lord. And Jesus is himself interceding for us right now. I'm just going to give it away. He wins here. And our prayers are brought to Jesus, who intercedes at the right hand of God the Father for our protection and for our provision. Do you pray for the spiritual strength of your sons and daughters? Do you realize that earlier, in Matthew 16, 17, of which I've spoken, that Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The priest has powerful words to speak into the life and the fabric of his children when he is praying to God Almighty for their souls and for their lives. You know, I'm, I'm driving up here and I, I'm coming... Uh, on the way to Grand Haven, on the way to Marne, on the way to Coopersville. And I remember I had an Opal GT. How many of you, I bought it at the Coopersville Auto Auction. Is that still in existence? The Co- is it? Okay. And I bought an Opal GT, and that was called a poor man's Corvette. And it was like a goat cart. And I would get into that thing and 
I mean, I, I got a ticket and then I sold it and uh, <laughs> things like that. But that Opal GT wore out. And then I got a duster. Remember that? The slant six engine? That was supposed to last forever. And then I went to the auction and I got a duster. And now that's worn out. And now I have this cute little juke. And I love that little juke. It's good gas mileage. It's kind of, it's, it's just a little car, but that's going to wear out. But as a father, my prayers for my children and my children's children will never wear out. The prayers for your friends and your neighbors and your relatives will never wear out. They are eternal because God is the one who hears the prayers in Jesus' name, and he isn't eternal. What are you doing that's going to last for eternity? What are you saying to your sons and your daughters? It's Father's Day next week. I'm looking forward to a new shirt. How many of you aren't looking forward to a new shirt? I get new shirts every Father's Day. I need them. Thank you. But fathers, what about this? Write a little note to my kids saying what I love about them. And it's a time for me to bless them. I'm an empty nester now, predominantly. Don't think of just the shirt. Although you might need the shirt like I do. But you think about your prayers for your children. You think about Jesus coming here and saying to Peter, can you imagine that? Satan has demanded to have you, Peter. But wait, I've prayed for you. Whoa, okay, now I was really nervous. Now Jesus is praying for me not going to really quite get it for 54 more days though what are you doing in the fabric of your children's souls that you're not praying for them young people do not turn off your ears at this point but start praying for your children right now pray that you would have the kind of wife that you can you can take hold of and 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 just pray. Lord bless this food to our bodies, bless our children. Or you have family worship with and you give praises to God for your children when they come to know Christ. When they come to know Christ, you still continuously pray for them that they would make those right choices, that they would be in love with the Lord Jesus Christ and they would make a difference in the world. What are you praying for that will last into eternity? Jesus has put his heart and his soul and his life into a select few men who will then turn the world upside down. But he prays for them. And then he says this, wow. So, oops, let me, let me stop. The, the idea of a priest, again, George Hammond writing to the mayor of London, says this, as a priest, the father, the head of the house, a man, is not only to present his body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Christ, 1 Peter 2, 5, 
but also to be, as it were, a priest for his family in things pertaining unto God, as Job offered burnt offerings for the expiation of his family's sins. And Abraham prayed for Ishmael. And our blessed Savior prayed both for his select disciples who were his family and with them as their mouth to God. We, in the Dutch, Calvinist, English, Presbyterian tradition, will speak much of theology, but will we speak warmly and experientially of prayers and reveal our heart to our children Reveal real love for them. Jesus is saying this in a very sweet, powerful, loving way. That his heart is very affectionate for Peter and the disciples. Now we see this last part. He is the king. And he says this. Is is this just a great line or what? Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And then he says this, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see, Peter, there is a cosmological battle going on. Rome thinks they're going to win. The Sanhedrin thinks they're going to execute me, which they will. A spear will be thrust up my side. But Peter, love doesn't win. I won. I won already. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. This is a done deal. It's over. I'm in control. Isn't that great? Um, By the way, I'm used to Baptists down south. And and when you say, isn't that great? They'll go, amen. Uh, Charismatics will say, preach, brother, preach. You know, Dutch, English people, they just... And raise their eyebrows. You can say, Amen. This is the creator of the universe. And he says he's going to win. And he won already. Isn't that great? There we go. You see, if you're a king, you rule with confidence. You rule with confidence. When our kids were growing up, The world was trying to conform them to their image. And you're struggling. I raised four daughters during Britney Spears. Okay? I know a little bit about the coming out the other end and confidence. Randy knows the same thing. And a school administrator said, when Britney Spears started, this is how girls came to school. By the time she was popular, this is how they came to school. You want to raise modest girls? You're you're in a battle. But I knew that if I stuck to my guns and said, no, 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 you don't go out the door that way. That sooner or later, they would know their dad loved them. They, they didn't think their dad loved them many days, by the way. Uh, you know, uh, I got the meanest dad in the whole world. How many of you were raised by a really mean dad? My dad made me get my hair cut. He made me go to sleep at night so I'd be ready to play sports. He made me wear a T-shirt so I didn't get sick. Stuff like that. I was raised by a really mean dad. And uh, he took me to work and made me work before 
before the law said it was all right. He, he preceded that. But we had to go pick up nails and, and then unbend nails. What a cheap Dutch Hollander is that? You can go get them at Home Depot. You know, that was before Home Depot. But if you're going to raise kids, you have to be confident that the lessons you're teaching them will prove faithful and available and they will understand when they're older. And then you have to rule with conviction. We had a basketball coach, and basketball is very important. Um, by the way, you're looking at the one-on-one champion of Walker Junior High in basketball for the short division. I was the runt of the litter. Uh, but he thought it was so important that you'd play on Sunday. He said, no, we don't do that. You don't get it. You don't get it. My authority comes from God. And my kids come and play for you, and they get my authority that comes from God that's given to you for two hours no more, and you won't get any more. And I I mean, I had to barrel up my chest, and I had to look them in the eye and say, you want us going to another school? Keep pushing it, buddy. And I I got a little bit tense like this, too. And... uh, and he's a big guy, too. But, I mean, I, I was convicted. And uh, I just said, that's not going to happen. You're not going to sever that. And also, we were very supportive of him in the stands. And my kids listened to him. And I said, do you like that? Well, my kids get that because the authority comes from God to me and my wife and given over to you for that two hours. But you don't get them anymore. You make a stand and you say to the world out there. And you say, oh, pastor, but sports. I want my kids to be successful. I want my kids to do well in school. I want my kids to do well in sports. That's not the God we serve. So we have priorities and we have conviction of our priorities. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And we have compassion for our children. And I think if I had to go back into time, Uh, We would take more time to say these kind of things to our kids. But I would say to them before they went to bed, uh, is there anything you could ever do to make Dad stop loving you? No. Is there anything you could do to make Dad go to bed every night and cry for the rest of his life? Yes. I want to be very careful in cars. As I travel up here, I go past... uh, gravesite where my high school prom date was killed as a young girl 18 years old I want my kids to be safe I wanted to have that love and compassion and let them know that I love them and I love them dearly and that will give sons and daughters tremendous confidence and Jesus is letting Peter know that he has compassion for him. He doesn't say, Peter, you're a loser. You're not going to do it on your own. I'm going, cutting you from the team, and I'm going to go get somebody else. He says, no. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. And I want to ask you this, my friends. Do you know the compassion of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That when you've blown it, When you haven't done family worship in particular, like I didn't do for for a while, we did really good growing up. Uh, 
uh, when the kids were in the house, I would lay down on the floor and I would read them the Bible and uh, they would lay on top of me and uh, just warm and affectionate and incarnational. And then that's why I got a little passion about that sports thing because we let other things creep in. And I'm really preaching to myself here where uh, I didn't have the right convictions and the right priorities. And so I had to do these things again and, and come home after I preached and cry with tears running down my face and tell my children that I had failed them. My friend is a uh, Princeton grad. And when he listened to Dr. Beakey preach and teach on family worship at the Piper Conference, he just looked at his wife and his two kids before he had four and said, I failed you. We have to do this. Jesus will go and find Peter fishing. He thinks, Peter thinks he's disqualified himself by denying Christ three times. You and I don't even fully comprehend the beauty and the glory and the grace of God, how unfailing is his love towards sinners who fail him. And that's what the gospel is all about. That's why he can be the prophet and speak the word of God to us with great authority. He can be the priest and bring our petitions up to God because he went to the cross and he satisfied God's wrath for our sins and he purchased for us the benefits as our brother of the inheritance we have. And now as king, he commands and demands us to go out into the world and to be new creatures in Christ based upon this. And listen, listen, listen in closing. He finds Peter fishing. And he says in front of everyone, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Three times. Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. He's now making a public spectacle. He says, and then feed my sheep. He wants it to be based upon love. He wants it to be based upon his finished work of the gospel. And he wants us to go out into the world and to feed the lambs, first of all, in our home. I have people who will go on mission projects all over the place, but they won't pray with their wives and children. And then into the Jerusalem, into Jesus. I had someone at First CRC at Byron Center say to me, stop preaching this. We do it all here. And Pastor Tom Grossman says, I don't know who that guy was, and I don't want to know, but you keep preaching and teaching it because... Uh, we think it's only happening 30%. I get notes from Orthodox Presbyterian elders and say, uh, Bruce, could you come and teach at a retreat because we're going on family visitation and we're asking the families how family devotions are going and we're getting blank stares. So before we can reach the ends of the earth and the Judeas and Samarias, we've got to come, if you can use this metaphor, into our own little Jerusalem, our home. And then we change the world through changing the fabric and structure of the home as their little seminaries committed to the beauty and the glory of the Trinity, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the practical application of praying with and for our families, speaking the word of God into the fabric of their souls, and ruling as men, 
so different from the world, but with great benevolence and love. That is the application of the gospel of Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Let us pray.